Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by Mortimer Mouse Political Consultants and Advisors, campaign and lobbying strategists since 1989. We work Sundays. In fact, we only work Sundays. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. And the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the real Enterprise. It's here, guys. The episode everybody has been asking for. Yep. Character copyright and fan fiction. We've heard like plenty of people saying, why can't we get into this, get into this more? We've obviously touched on it a few times in conjunction with it. But this is the episode focused on it, probably the episodes focused on it, because this yeah, is this, a uh, major issue. This may play out over a couple of episodes. This topic, for whatever reason, really captures people's imagination. When I first screened the idea for this podcast, uh, on ISCA, by the way, of all places, um, if you listen to our last episode, uh, the the number one feedback I got from people was character copyright. That's the episode I want to hear. Why do yeah. you think this topic catches people's attention? I think it so catches it for a couple of reasons. One, because I think a lot of people want to play in these universes. They see the stuff out there. They want to be, know what they can and can't do. But I think character copyright in particular catches people's attention because we look at characters and say, how is a character a copyright? I mean, we kind of I think everybody accepts copyright like copyright in a movie, copyright in a book, copyright in a song. But the idea of copyright, when we say no, it's it's not that you know. The copyright is in Hamlet. The copyright is Hamlet. And we kind of get into this thing like, wait a minute, how does this person attach a copyright? When what we're really talking about is the work of creative fiction. Again, I think we're used to it being a particular work, a particular you know sort of thing with it. But this is not a work. This is kind of a, an artificial construct. Yeah, and it's, it seems sort of non-intuitive, right? Like you, you watch a movie, is every character in the film now copyrighted? But so yeah. much of what you see is just random extras. Like yeah. like Braveheart's got a big battle scene with a bunch of random Scottish soldiers. Well, obviously there's no copyright in like a yeah. Scottish soldier. And, and I think the other thing you get into a lot of it, and, and you know, quite frankly, just to follow up from Charlotte from our last episode, you get into a lot of cosplay. People are want to be these characters. I remember one of the big comments, when, and it's something I remember spending bonding back, is a bunch of people coming in and you know complaining about Ray um, when sort of that initially came out. And you know why did they make Ray a woman? And our response back to it is after seeing you know episode seven, I want to be Ray. Like yeah. <laughs> you know, that's it's the kind of thing where it's you know you want to be these characters. You really want to sort of you want to, be able to dress up as them. You want to play yourself out as them. And I think it's something we've we've done as ki- we did as kids. I mean, you know, my kids are constantly playing as you know being yeah. characters from movies and stuff. And they like fight that. over who gets to be who. Yeah, you know, and we we're used to dressing up at Halloween, and we kind of look at this idea and say, wait a minute, how can these guys be copyrighted? How can these guys be protected? Isn't this something that just it almost sort of enters the public consciousness. Well, there's two dimensions of this that people seem to be really interested in, and one of them we're going to hit on today, one of them we're not. The first dimension is this this widely distributed internet, uh, I'm going to call it a legend, although there's an element of truth to it. Yes, there's an element of truth to it, that, uh, that the copyright term in the United States keeps getting extended to prevent Mickey Mouse from entering the public domain. And there's a, a chart that I've seen thrown around that shows when the copyright's going to expire compared to when Congress extends it. And, and there certainly does seem to be some kind of relationship there. Now, you could argue it's coincidental. We've got Got some treaties that that require us to extend copyrights, but we're not going to get into that part today yep. because we first need to lay a little bit of the groundwork for what character copyright is in the first place. So our conversation is going to focus more on the fan fiction aspects of it and going beyond character copyright, not just what what protects characters, but settings and universes and, and things like that. And you know, what would prevent you from from creating your own original works that happen to be set in somebody else's universe? Yeah, and I think the the thing we're we're really going to get into this is the 
concept of, and I think this is the the piece that we're going to focus on in this, the individual characters, the individual pieces. So when we talk about, you know, we've talked about copyright previously. We've talked about the idea that like, you know, yes, you know, the Star Wars movie is copyrighted. There's sort of no question in conjunction with that. But now we're getting at what individual pieces of, of, of Star Wars are potentially subject to copyright. And that's where this gets really interesting. It's almost sort of like saying it's, it's sampling in music for movies, you know, and in, in sampling for music, hey, a three-second clip can be considered a copyright infringement. Unless it's Taylor Swift, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who didn't see that a few weeks ago, yeah. Um, but anyway, the, uh, that's the, the sort of thing. We're just going to try to get into essentially what are the pieces here. And to understand that, I think we need to do just a little bit of introduction in copyright. I know you guys have done this before if you've listened to us, but in case there you know, are any new listeners, we better do just a brief intro here. Yeah, so quick 60 seconds in copyright. Those of you who listen know it's a right granted to authors. You get it automatically by operational law. And when you make something creative, you get exclusive rights in, uh, in creative and expressive works only. And whoever has those rights has the, is, is the only person that can make copies of the work that can distribute the work publicly, that can display or perform the work publicly, or can create derivative works from whatever it is that you've made. And an important concept that kind of plays on First Amendment considerations is this thing we call the idea-expression dichotomy yep. or, or divide. You can Wikipedia that and, and get a lot of detail on it, but it basically says that there's a balance between free speech and copyright where we don't want to use – we don't want copyright to prevent people from effectively communicating ideas or concepts or, or, or making their own original creative expression. So you can copyright an expression of an idea, a particular yep. expression – but you cannot copyright the underlying idea itself, and at least that, in theory. <laughs> at least in theory. And I think the thing to point out this in character copyright and where this sort of comes in with the idea-expression dichotomy is the concept of there are essentially archetypes of characters. So when we talk about the idea of what is a character, are we talking about a character which is an archetype or are we talking about a character which is the specific expression of an archetype? So I think that's the thing we get into is an archetype is the idea. The particular character is an expression of the archetype. So like the the wide-eyed scientist is an archetype. Dr. Yeah. Emmett Brown from Back to the Future is a particular yeah. character. I mean, and you can definitely come up with these very, very easily. I mean, you know, the mad scientist. I mean, uses sort of the same yeah. sort of scientist thing conjunction with it, which we can immediately think of hundreds of different mad scientists, very different people. I mean, yeah. you have Dr. Octopus versus Dr. Frankenstein. You know, I mean, y- you can definitely get at those kind of of idea di- expression dichotomies. The hard part I think you get into is it's oftentimes what is the archetype? And, and what is an archetype versus what is the character? Well, there's a fundamental question about how far these copyright rights extend. Uh, and let's take a very simple example. Kirk, I think you've read the Game of Thrones books. I've read them, yes. I have not watched all of it. Uh, no, I, I, I did get it. for My wife actually got it for me for a present. I think I have all the seasons now that have been released on DVD. Those of you who've read the books, you've been patiently waiting for seven or eight years now for the <laughs> next book. I still haven't read the, the last one. I haven't read Dance of Dragons yet, so I'm still one away. But well, so there, so what? What would stop somebody? You know, Kirk, you and I are both uh, uh, you know self-styled writers of some sort. What would stop one of us from just writing uh, a continuation of that story with those characters? It would be a whole new expression. Yep. Uh, we wouldn't be copying anything that uh, that Martin wrote. We wouldn't be uh, distributing copies uh, publicly of anything he wrote. Uh, we wouldn't be displaying or performing his works. It'd be a wholly original work. So why couldn't we do that? Yeah, and I think that's. It, and now we're getting at exactly why sort of character copyright exists in some respects. So what we're talking about in this, in many respects, is that you're writing a sequel. Yeah. Um, we're talking about the idea of that somebody's writing a sequel to the book. Um, 
or a prequel or anything else. I mean, when we say sequel, we don't necessarily From mean that it's, yeah. It, it, a continuation. It, yeah, it's a continuation that's temporally after the original. It could be, you know, a, a, temp, a continuation that comes temporally before it. Um, but what we're really getting into in these things is character copyright. And the concept behind character copyright is that in order to write the sequel, in order to write, you know, whatever the next book in the Game of Thrones book series is going to be, one would have to utilize characters, which are essentially the creation of George R. R. Martin, and are entitled to copyright on their own. So Daenerys, Jon Snow, all the main characters you know, yeah. you'd need to talk about them to continue the story. Exactly. And I think that that's, you know, when you look at it from that point of view, it sort of makes some sense as to why you have character copyright. Right. And the reason we have it, just to keep in mind, is people often talk about the idea that there's a copyright protecting sequels. And the answer is there isn't necessarily anything that would necessarily be called a sequel right. It's not that clear. Yeah. And, and the you have reason, the derivative work right, but that's it's not a complete match. Yeah. And derivative work, when you really look at what sort of derivative work was under copyright, derivative work really wasn't sequels because derivative work kind of had to derive from the first one. Yeah, we still look at it and say this derives from it, but not in the same way like a translation does, which is really the same work, but obviously you're going to have some potential you know, changes with it. And you also sort of get into, well, where does the, and we talked about this previously, where does derivative work lie and where is it become transformative fair use and you kind of see again this this kind of bump is like wait derivative work may not necessarily work for this area and that's where i think character copyright has come into play is to try to deal with this problem yeah and the, the derivative work rules um there's a definition of derivative works and it it has to be one based upon you know a pre-existing work obviously but then the copyright act gives some examples of what they're talking about so like a translation a dramatization fictionalization making a movie version these are all derivative yep. works which would be separately and independently copyrightable but based on the original work the, the thing is you can think you can conceptualize a way that you could write fan fiction that would not qualify as a derivative yeah. work. You could just not reference the characters or just uh, an example, you know, take Star Trek. You could make a, a whole new book or movie or whatever, set it on a planet that's never been named, never mention Kirk or Spock, never mention the Starship Enterprise. You could really write around yep. the IP that's in Star Trek, but still make it really clear you're set in Star Trek. You mentioned phasers or you mentioned the Federation. I mean, yeah. Federation is a pretty generic word. Yeah, and that's the thing with it. I think the thing you really keep in mind about sort of derivative work when we did it, and you talk about all these examples of it, the, one of the key words in it is that they basically say it's the equivalent of the original work being recast or adapted. That's or kind transformed of the way they say it, somehow, transformed. Yeah. And this is not the original work. It's it's clearly not the original work. You're moving beyond it. You're moving to that idea of a sequel. Um and so how, you know, what do we look at and do we say basically what is the thing for a sequel? Now, part of this I think we need to, to talk about just briefly is one, just acceptance of it. And I think one of the things that we're used to as, as geeks and as a lot of people in, in sort of science fiction realms, we're used to the idea of canon versus non-canon. <laughs> um, yes. And let's face it, if we were to write a sequel to Game of Thrones or, you know, to write the, the seventh book in conjunction with it, it would not be canon. Nobody would accept it as canon. No. It would be understood to not have anything to do with it. The true believers barely accept the films <laughs> for that matter. <laughs> yeah, well, let's face it. Is the canon the TV show or the books? And actually right there, we've got a first question because now we seem to have a clear derivative work. We can look at it and say the TV show which is going off in a totally different direction, presumably, um, to what the books are going to go, is probably a derivative work because it's clearly based upon the originals. It's essentially continuing the storyline, which began with essentially a translation or a, a movie version of it. Um, 
and is now going off on its own, but which one's actually canon, and are they both entitled to separate copyright? And the answer is they are. Not to mention the characters. The characters could evolve in very different directions. Yep. So do you have two different character copyrights in the same characters? Well, that's actually one of the things you can bump into that's really kind of intriguing with characters, and actually there's a, there's a case out there on Sherlock Holmes. And the issue with it is, is Sherlock Holmes was actually, there's basically, a, a, my understanding is there's a group of books that were written for Sherlock Holmes, and there was a window in which none were written, and then they wrote a sort of second group afterwards. And character, Sherlock Holmes' character evolves. Um, he, he learns various things. The reason it matters is because the time period we're in right now, the ex- copyrights on the first group has expired, but the second group has not. And the case that basically had to do with this is that basically you could use Sherlock Holmes, but you couldn't use aspects of his character that developed in the later books. Apparently, the major one is that he was afraid of dogs because the Hound of the Baskervilles occurred mm-hmm. somewhere in the in here. Um, and you know, you look at that and you sort of say, have, we've got this evolving character now that's changing. So you could essentially have two characters, two separate copyrights. You could literally have two separate copyrights in two different versions of the same character. Now, Kirk, you looked into the origins of this character copyright at, at some point not, <laughs> not too long ago. And it, it seems clear to both of us that the derivative work right by itself probably isn't enough to provide the scope of protection that copyright owners would want. But that said, the law seems to have just sort of recognized this for a long time, going back to the the last last major amendment, you know, 1976 was the last big Copyright Act amendment. Before that was 1909. And in between there, there's plenty of cases that just recognize, well, you know, there's some copyrightability in characters. But the, the rationale for why it exists is not abundantly clear. Yeah, and a lot of what the, the, what the courts will tell you, and I think if you're going to sort of investigate the background of a lot of this law, what they try to tell you is effectively the characters are something entitled to their own copyright. That by the act of creating them, they've become sufficiently the creation of the author that they're entitled to copyright outside of the book. And it's kind of the way we can look at it and say, like, hey, if I hear a piece of music, but then I generate a piece of art from listening to the piece of music, I've obviously generated something separately copyrightable, even though it's influenced by it. Um, the, the idea sort of behind this is that I think that these, when you're generating, you're doing this act of creation, you create things that essentially have a life of their own. You'll hear from like a lot of authors where they say, you know, when they write the book, they write the character and then they just let the character Take place in the story, yeah. and, and move people forward. say, "How do you how do you write? You come up with your stories." They say, "I don't I don't come up with them. I find them." Yeah, and it's you know this character does this, and then how would this character react? You know, and and I know a lot of a lot of times authors have you know like problem points with their fans because like they feel the need to have a character be killed because it fits with the way mm-hmm. that character would behave. Yet it's a very like enduring character, a character people really love. What you really see, and this is sort of my take with it, and, and it's going to sound a little bit cynical in conjunction with this, <laughs> is you see a lot of follow the money, unfortunately, coming through out of character character copyright and you see the idea that basically says well there's no copyright because effectively characters are archetypes then you kind of see that well there is a character copyright because they're sufficiently defined and interestingly enough one of the places it oftentimes starts is it started I think a lot of visually portrayed characters when we were talking about pure novels I think there was not as much used of the idea of character copyright well there was a case but, on that right in the 50s that you yep. found the, the Warner Brothers versus Columbia where they held that literary characters were not sufficiently fleshed out to yep. warrant copyright or copyright protection. Yeah, as a and character. basically that was the. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember. It's famous detective. It's escaping me right now. Um, that same spade. Same spade. Yeah. Um, and basically they determined that same spade as a literary work was not sufficiently you know laid out to become a character copyrightable and therefore could be presented as a movie character because that made him more definite. But then Disney sues people in the 70s. Yep. And the rules change. And the rules change. And and the thing I think you get into is I do think you start seeing more visual medium. And that seems to be one of the things. One of the things I get into, just so you guys know, I actually I published a, a rather large scholarly paper about this a long time ago. Um, 
But one of the things that I got into in conjunction with it is you seem to have this feel that like you need the character to be really well laid out in multiple ways. So the example with it is, is you can't just have the way they talk. You have to have them be described in great detail. Well, obviously describing them in literary works, like saying what they look like is not nearly as powerful as showing them on a screen, particularly if it's something where it's wholly created. So it's an animated character where there's no actor or anything, you know, underplaying it. Um, and that seems to be, you get, you get a lot of comic book characters starting to come in and say comic book characters are different. Um, because they're portrayed visually. That's the Disney case. They said that since there's a visual depiction of the character and there's art involved, so now there is some sort of um, expression inherent in the character itself. Yeah, and that's what's weird. Again, it didn't say their appearance. It didn't say the artwork associated with them. It said the character. And you saw this carrying through. There's been a number of characters that have sort of been associated with comic books that have been found to be character copyrighted. Um, What you then have is I think the court finally recognizing that, look, we can't make this dichotomy. We can't say that if you draw the character, somehow you get more protection than if you describe the character in writing. And basically saying it has to be sufficiently portrayed. So basically it has to be distinctive. And that seemed to be well established by at least the eight, the late 80s. We got the Olsen versus NBC case yep. uh, where they basically said, you know what, that Warner Brothers thing in the 50s was kind of a one-off. They're, they're wrong. That's not how we're going to do this Yeah, it was effectively anymore. a mistake. They couldn't really overrule it, but it was effectively a mistake. Um, and I think that that's, they, they basically said sort of hate is distinctive characters. But at the same time, you do have the requirement to be a sufficiently distinctive character. We should point out most of this law is not from the Supreme Court. It's from the Ninth Circuit, which has, yep. shockingly, California in it. Yeah, and that's where a lot of this is coming from, just because, I mean, th- what you're talking that's about. That's where the lawsuits come from, yeah, is I mean, the movie it's, industry. It's movies. Um, but what does sufficiently distinct mean? So let's give some examples of who's a sufficiently distinct character. Yep. So, I mean, I think the, the one that gets thrown out a lot is sufficiently distinct character, and the one that I always like to pick on is Superman. Yeah. Um, Superman is a very distinct character. He's very specific. Everybody knows essentially exactly what he looks like, how he behaves, what he does. I mean, you can make fun of him for that reason mm-hmm. because he is so specific as to what it is. We're talking on the way over, though. Like, is, is Superman distinct because he's famous or because the character is actually that distinct? Like, what is his yep. personality, really? And Other that's than boringly good. Yeah, you know? <laughs> he is. He is unfortunately sort of the boringly good Boy Scout, and that's I think where you can make fun of him a little bit. But the the thing that I think you get into with Superman is Superman has evolved. And how do you deal with the evolution of character? Um, and particularly when you're talking about the idea of an author, we're kind of I'm going to kind of get into that canon bit again. Mm-hmm. Why does the author get to say this is what they are? 20 years after they created them. Why do they get to add this aspect to their personality? And we kind of look at it and say, well, because that's the author's right. They created the character. But why does that then change? And if we're going back to the Sherlock Holmes case, why does that potentially extend their character copyright on the grounds that this is a new character? Isn't this always been an aspect of the character? So the example would be is if we take Sherlock Holmes being afraid of dogs, we could say, did Sherlock Holmes acquire that, which may be a change to the character, or did he always have that? And, I mean, we all talk about, you know, retconning history, mm-hmm. you know, in conjunction with games and stuff like that. What you have here, in some sense, is you can have a retconning, where you have basically somebody coming in and saying, hey, look, I'm going to add this new aspect to this character's personality, yet it's always been there. You just didn't realize it. Um, what, does that, what does that mean? Isn't this a new character? Isn't this a change of the character? And how do we say that the character's copyrightable if we didn't know that this was part of their personality? Well, let's look at another couple examples. James Bond. Yep. Who's obviously changed dramatically and, you know, over the years. I mean, multiple different actors. Even the most recent movie, I think, Inspector, they basically indicated James Bond was more of a persona than yeah. an individual person. Well, this, this one, I like this one. Godzilla. 
Yeah. What is Godzilla's character? Godzilla's a giant rubber monster. A giant rubber monster. <laughs> but I mean, it's everybody does know specifically Godzilla. I think specifically Godzilla has a look that is different. He's not a T-Rex. I mean, you know, is that kind no, of thing. No, he's got Obviously, the big plates and yeah. You know, breeze fire sometimes, I think. Yeah, he breathes fire, at least in certain aspects of his thing. But I think the thing that you go into with Godzilla is most people would be able to point to Godzilla versus not Godzilla. Yeah. Even though effectively Godzilla is nothing other than a giant lizard. And how about some stock characters that have been held by courts to to not be copyrightable? Yeah. I've got a couple examples written down here. Hard nosed police captain. Yeah, that's a that's a <laughs> yeah, that's pretty standard. Is <laughs> you know what you encounter virtually anything. I want your badge. <laughs> uh, I love this one. Gesticulating Frenchman. <laughs> yes, the gesticulating Frenchman was found to be a, a insufficiently distinct stock character. Fire breathing uh, dragon. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah. This is my favorite though. I didn't know this was an archetype. Drunken <laughs> drunken suburban housewife. Yeah, but these are these are house and the part of these you got to keep in mind. These came out of specific. Specific things. Yeah, these are all from uh, cases. They're all specific cases as to you know, sort of what they had. There's this thing Frenchman I'm trying to remember what I think was found to be in one of Shakespeare's works as a as a original. Either that or Monty Python, right? Um, <laughs> well, I think it came into Monty Python. This is where oh, it, it came been, from? But it was it, it's it's found to have been a, a stock character from way back from like Shakespeare time. Well, here's what I find bizarre about this. So if if the character is sufficiently distinct, then there's some copyright to it, and that means other people can't make new material that use that same character. So. We kind of talked about this a couple episodes ago. If you want to reuse uh, somebody else's IP, like what like Warcraft did with uh, Warhammer, you just re-express the same idea in different expression. Yeah. Uh, You're using this, the same archetypes with different expressions. So yeah, again, we're so, getting to that idea expression dichotomy. Exactly so instead the of Superman, we're going to have Amazing Man, yeah. who comes from another planet. Well, and, and the case actually involved Greatest American Hero, which <laughs> for those of you who definitely are the millennial class have no idea who he is. Yep. Um, essentially, that was a parody comedy TV show where Greatest American Hero was essentially a parody of Superman. So, Kirk, have the courts let people get away with this, just remaking Superman and changing his name? Um, yes and no, I think is the answer. Um, I think a lot of it depends on what it is. And I think what you really see and where you really see the courts going in conjunction with this and a lot of the discussion of it is, is it Superman or is it another character that happens to is use the same Is it different article? enough? Yeah, is it different enough? But even, and where I say it is it's, it's almost like they impart Superman a personality and say Superman is a person. As a person, are you referring to the same Superman or not? So again, if you were to look at like the Greatest American Hero case, they said Greatest American Hero is not Superman. He's a parody of Superman. He's dying to be funny. It's not Superman. Yet they look at something and say, hey, you've got this person who wears you know red and blue, and the example mm-hmm. I use is like Supergirl. So you can kind of look at Supergirl and say, but Supergirl is clearly a derivative, clearly related to Superman. Even though that's you know not nothing to do with character copyright because of the fact they're both produced by the same comic book studios mm-hmm. and they're obviously designed to be related. But it's one of those where you kind of look at it and say it's designed to be the same person. It's designed to reference that particular Superman in a way that's sort of unavoidable. And we touched with this in sort of in the episode a couple times ago too, you know, with Nazi and the issue <laughs> of, of trademark on Nazi. Um, is, you know, that that term references a particular sort of general archetype. Yet at the same time, I mean, there's huge numbers of different things you can do inside that general archetype yeah. without having to make, you know, a, a particular identical one to the sort of class yeah. stereotypical branch. Clearly a stock character, and in a World War World War II setting, it's going to be sans affair. It's going yeah. to be uh, obligatory background material you have to have to yeah, tell I mean, the story. Yeah, you essentially have to have it, and you have to use it. And I, and I think that's the, um, the thing you get into. What, the, what's interesting is when you see the courts, they, they, the courts seem to have trouble with the 
idea of where does the line cross between a sufficiently distinct character and a named character. But they also seem to struggle with at what point are you actually infringing the copyright, and what they look at is not is the expression the same, but is the basic concept, is the idea the same, is the look and feel the same. First of all, this violates the idea-expression dichotomy, and yeah. second— it sounds like trademark. Yeah, it does start to sound like trademark. And that's what we really bump into with this is we start to see the courts seeming to imply like likelihood of confusion test, which is a con- trademark principle, yeah. to copyright and to something where there's no goods sold. You know, we, we look at this and say, you know, have there been goods and services sold by the George R. R. Martin books? No, there's no, you know, brand name for anything associated with characters. Well, there is in some cases, I think. But, you know, for the most part, the characters, they exist solely in a fictional universe. They aren't brands. Yet we kind of start applying these things of is it confusingly similar? And again, that's the idea where they seem to get at. And what I think is interesting about it is you seem to get a lot of these sort of questions with it of is it is it a named character or is it a non-named character? And you can almost have the same description for a named character as you have for a non-named description character, and they find one to be subject character copyright and the other one not to be. It's almost, I mean, to your earlier point about follow the money, it kind of is a character, it's not so much about the distinctiveness of the character, it, it seems to be more about the fame of the character. Like, yeah. is the character well enough known that people would recognize them yeah, and, and, and know whose character it is, which again, just sounds like trademark. Yeah. Well, one of those I actually popped into it, and it said, one of the things that I proposed in my paper is I said, you know, this might actually be better if we handled by a right of publicity type analysis using the idea of a a fictional character or literary character being a personality entitled to a right of publicity. So basically, are you referring to that person? So, you know, for example, it's, you know, if I was to refer to, you know, you know, any sort of, you know, actor or actress by name, I'm presumably referring to that person, yet there's maybe other people who have the identical name that I could refer to and not be referring to that person. That's where I kind of you bump into the right of publicity as to, you know, what it would potentially be. Michael Jordan. you got Michael Jordan, the athlete, and Michael B. Jordan, who was just in Black Panther. Yeah. Um, and so those kind of things where you've got is it's, you know, which one am I referring to? It's, you know, you've got to, each has got a right of publicity, unquestionably. Mm-hmm. But I can't, you know, I'm not going to get in trouble for referring to one by not and not referring to the other by essentially the right of publicity of the other, um, and the one case I like to pick on in conjunction with this is this, and you have it in here is that in, in our notes for today is this eighteen versus Carco case. And for any of you guys who watch the eighteen, yes, we're reminiscing about the eighties again. Actually, really like the late seventies. Really, the late seventies. Yeah, the yeah the eighteen. This is Mister T for yeah, those of you. Who- it made Mister T's career, and I mean Mister T is is probably the star stealer of the show of the eighteen. I mean his character is is great. Um, but basically, the A-Team is a group of essentially Vietnam veterans that go out and, and help people you know, that, that need help. The issue with it is, is that they were sued, actually, when they created the A-Team by a scriptwriter who had proposed a, a, a basic idea um, of a, a show called Cargo. And the, sh- the cargo show involved a group of Vietnam veterans who all have very similar personalities to the A-Team. Um, I mean, literally, each character is identical. And one of the important aspects and just one of the key things in the, in the A-Team is that Mr. T's character is deathly afraid of flying. He's not afraid of anything except for flying. And so having to get him on a plane is always one of the sort of fundamental issues of a lot of the episodes. That's one of the aspects that's discussed in cargo. And it's one of these things where you get into it and... You look at it and you say, wait a minute, that sounds like this copy this copy of the same characters. And that was found to not be a copyright infringement because the cargo characters were archetypes. And it's crazy. It, and you kind of look at it and go, but wait a minute, doesn't that make the A-team characters copyright just by putting a name to them? You know, by calling them, you know, that this is this character, that this is, you know, I can't remember the character's names at this point in time. I want to say it was a Hannibal. For yeah, some Hannibal Smith, was it? Yeah, Hannibal Smith, I think was the leader. I don't know. I, I didn't um, watch the A-team, so I don't know. But, you know, does, by calling him Hannibal Smith, does that somehow make him a character beyond an archetype? 
because obviously they, they developed, we only saw them during these, you know, brief half hour, you know, hour long uh, windows of time, we're only 40 minutes plus ads, um, <laughs> of, you know, what their character was. How much of their character do we really get? Weren't they really an archetype? Yeah, and and so if 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 in the cargo script the characters were described but not named, and the only thing yeah. you've done is put a name on them, and that's enough, you know, because the the danger of that is if the cargo characters weren't copyrightable, then that arguably the A team characters wouldn't have been either, right? So yeah. so then what's to stop? I don't know what channel that was on. Uh, what's to stop another network Who's from NBC. was it? Not what's sure to stop another network from making their own their own copycat? You know, show and and you do you do see this play out. I think in Hollywood a little bit. How often do you see two movies about the same basic subject matter get made at about the same time? Yep. So you get Deep Impact and Armageddon. Yeah. And then you've got uh, uh, you know uh, Inferno and Dante's Peak. You know these things tend to get made in pairs. My my theory on that is that a screenwriter pitches a script. You know, a studio passes, Studio B picks it up, and Studio A says, "Oh crap, we need to make one too," because because they're doing yeah. it. Some of it's also just I think because it's what's popular and sort of yeah. what we want to talk about in sort of modern culture. So obviously, we were interested in the end of the world, so we were making Armageddon. We're making all these other movies about the end of the world. This this whole concept applies particularly to Mickey Mouse. We're not going to go into a lot on the the specifics of Disney in this episode, but your point about Sherlock Holmes comes up here because Mickey Mouse has had very different appearances over time, very different personalities over time. Time. Yep. His, he's evolved so much that the evolution of Mickey Mouse specifically has been studied academically. Yep. Um, so, and, and obviously this is a big deal because the it, to the extent that there's a copyright on Steamboat Willie, it expires in a couple years. Yeah, it's getting very close. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind in Mickey Mouse is when we talk about the idea of appearance changing over time, Steamboat Willie's black and white. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even have any colors at that point in time. I mean, and he's basically lying. It's not like it's, you know, really shaded to be specific colors or anything along those lines. I mean, we are talking about something where, you know, that aspect of his personality, what color his shorts were, you know, is not something that exists in Steamboat Willie. I don't even think he particularly wears those, you know, the sort of the stereotypical shorts that we're used to him wearing. Well, the trademark uh, Ears, like the ears yeah. is a thing everybody thinks about. Everybody thinks of the ears. I mean, he does have the ears because obviously he's still a mouse. But, yep. um, but I think you get into you know that type of thing that we look at and say, hey, this evolution. We look at it and say, well, when does Mickey Mouse's copyright run? One of the key aspects of copyright is copyright law has to provide protection for a limited amount of time. That's required by the Constitution that it has to be for a limited amount of time. And so we look at it and we say, well, what is the limited amount of time for Mickey Mouse? Actually, interestingly enough, another character that sort of bumps into this is Red and Yellow. The M&M's. Mm-hmm. Um, Red and Yellow have actually been um, the characters representing M&M's for a large number of years, and their appearances have also changed. Um, and obviously, new ones have been added to sort of the universe. We've had Green get added. Now we've had Caramel, you know, those kind of things get added. <laughs> now, there's an argument that they're trademarks. So yeah. they're going to be subject to trademark law because they're clearly, the selling, bunny, yeah, they're clearly selling brands and stuff like that. But you see a lot of this evolution of characters over time. And when you talk about it as the idea of character copyright, because even for trademark, there's still a copyright in the in the underlying artwork and in the, in yep. the character. How exactly does this run. And I think that's one of the reasons that, quite frankly, character copyright is a popular issue amongst fans is because you It's hard to this, reconcile it. Like, yeah. at what point is the character exta- established? Yeah, at what point is the character established and at what point does the character effectively expire and it becomes public domain? Because if, if I'm Disney, and this is, this is not just me playing devil's advocate, this is what makes sense to me. They, they seem completely paranoid about Steamboat Willie's copyright expiring and that the, Mickey Mouse is then going to enter the public domain. But if it was me, I'd be thinking, well, but I mean, all, all that really expired is that particular 
uh, motion picture, and that's yeah. it. And whatever they did with Mickey in the 1950s and 1980s and last year is all still separately copyrightable. And I would argue to the extent that his personality now has any copyrightability, it certainly arose after Steamboat Willie. I think the problem you bump into with that, though, is then if you look at it and say it has to have a limited term, when did yeah. it start? So can you just keep modifying the character's yeah. personality ad infinitum to, to where it never yeah. expires? And, and but, I think the reason, to be quite truthful, I think the reason Mickey Mouse is actually one of the things related to this is because Mickey is one of the first animated characters. Mm-hmm. And we get back to that discussion we had just a few minutes ago of a visual medium, the visual medium being more important to defining visual characters. This is one of the first characters we have who's truly defined in a visual medium with a personality, with moving pictures. You know, animation kind of, you know, was was the fr- forefront in many respects of seeing the law be found on character copyright. So it makes sense that Mickey Mouse is one of the earliest. And I think that's part of the issue that, that we're getting into right now is we haven't really had these characters expire. Well, that's the thing. And most of the characters that people care about have, have I would say in most cases, virtually no literary description or, or definitions. Yeah. Almost all done visually or through audio, you know, visual narrative, uh, yeah. storytelling. Well, through, and particularly uh, with sort of film. modern things, even the ones who do have, you know, that are truly literary are converted into movies. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know... Lord of the Rings is a good example. Yeah. I think most people associate those characters with the movies more so than the books. Yeah, even though, you know, you can go back to the original animated Hobbit, you know, which yeah. obviously portrayed them and stuff, you know, like that. But I think there is a, an association, and you, you want me to do it at science fiction conventions and talking with, you know, actors who play science fiction, you know, uh, characters, that you know, they're not the role they play, but a lot of these people seem to think they are and have personality traits associated with the role they play. We, we really do associate that visual medium with the idea that this is the character and it has this appearance and this is the person. Well, setting aside the characters, we, you know, we'll accept the character copyright as it is, but that doesn't mean I have to use the characters, right? So I can still write my own fan fiction and set my story in somebody else's universe or setting without referencing the characters at all. Yep. So, so, so now what? Do you argue that the character copyright that the universe itself is a character? Well, and that's actually, that's I mentioned this paper that I published a number of years ago. That's actually the question that I raised um, in conjunction with that paper. And what I was really focusing on is what is a character in some respects? So we can look at it and say, is the Starship Enterprise a, a character? The Starship Enterprise is a thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't act. What about the but, car kit from Knight Rider? Yep, the car kit from Knight Rider, which <laughs> does have a personality. But, I mean, the Enterprise arguably has a personality, It's got a computer. Too. It talks. It's an animated image. I mean, it's no different from Mickey Mouse in many respects. You know, we sort of look at it and say, wait a minute. You know, we have this. Yeah, I mean, we have personalities. These things, you know, they, they do talk. You know, the computer responds. Mm-hmm. It responds in a particular way. What about the city of Gotham? Yeah, very well defined. Better defined than a lot of characters. Yeah, other than the fact that it's Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but uh, you know, I think you get into you know the the, uh, the city of Gotham. The sort of now we're talking about setting. You know, is Gotham? What about Arkham Asylum? Yeah, I mean, you know, let's get into one. a really particular you know piece of the Batman universe where you know I think that uh, that Arkham Asylum has been very very well defined. Um, and you get into these kind of weird questions of sort of saying, well, what about uh, you know other aspects of the setting? Well, what about a planet? What about Tatooine? Yeah, you know, which it's is just a obviously it's a it's a desert it's planet. Arizona. You know, <laughs> it isn't, but it has it become something specific in the fact that it's Tatooine as opposed to being Jakku? Yeah, which is also a desert planet. You know, it shares very similar sort of you know aspects to it. We talked about this in our language episode. So there was a Star Trek fan film called Prelude to Axanar. And uh, this is a fan film being made off of uh, uh, you know funds raised from a Kickstarter or something like that, and uh, they they were eventually sued by Paramount and CBS, uh, arguing that the the film uh, violates uh, CBS and Paramount's copyright rights to uh, Star Trek. And I actually pulled the the original complaint and looked at it. 
And it's it's interesting the arguments that were made. They you know the the plaintiffs Paramount. Uh, point out that the bridge on the set looks like a Federation starship bridge, that the weapons and technology look like Star Trek weapons and technology, that they have the concept of the Federation as an alliance of planetary governments. They use the words look and feel, feel and mood, uh, that it's basically copying the way that Star Trek seems to be or, or, or feels. And again, this this all comes across as more of a trademark interest to or me. Or even a trade dress type argument. Or trade dress. But here's what I found really interesting. They, they they, they went to the effort in the complaint of saying that the film is not parody or criticism. And there's a good reason for that because you do have First Amendment rights, broad First Amendment rights for parody and criticism. But isn't that sort of ironic, Kirk? Like you can you can only you can only make fan fiction if you're making fun of the thing that you're Yeah, that you're it, it is about? kind of weird. But I mean, admittedly, like even parody is sort of specific formats as satire is yeah. what's actually more the protected thing, more so, so than like parody. Spaceballs is fine, but prelude to Spaceballs is not. arguably not fine. I mean, I think we you know we talk about it as they it's, probably got permission. Know, they, they probably got permission, to be my guess. I mean, Weird Al um, does that with everything he samples. Yes. And that's I th- I think the, the a lot of the times you get into these things that quite frankly they're they're willing to, you know, do these types of things with it. But with fan fiction, one, they don't want to have a licensing arm that does this. Now, a lot of places do. I mean, if you actually get on a lot of sites, there's a lot of discussion specifically of what fans can and can't do in the universe. They we need talked about to stream trademarks, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, we talked about Paramount now has like fan fiction guidelines because it's just so popular to, to do that for Star Trek. Well, here's an interesting thing. We, we kind of talked about this on the way over here too. The Orville versus Star Trek Discovery. Yep. Star Trek Discovery is a very different kind of Trek. If you haven't seen it, it's dark, it's gritty, there's profanity, there's some nudity. It, it is not at all like the Trek you grew up with in the 80s and 90s. It is, it is not like Next Gen. Yeah. It is more like a typical 21st century, uh, a gritty, realistic sci-fi product. Then you've got the Orville, which has a very similar look and feel to old school Star Trek. The ships have the sort of smooth lines. Yep. Uh, it's a very clean, utopian-type future, uh, high production value, similar cinematography. The set design's the same. The plot structure's the same. Even the music is very Trek-like. So we have Orville, which is on Fox, not CBS, that seems to look and feel like Trek. We have actual Trek now, uh, or the movies even, which don't quite feel the yep. same way either as, as the other ones. They're all, they're all space action now as opposed to to drama or suspense. So Star Trek itself, the direction Paramount and CBS are taking it, seems to be away from the look and feel and the and the, the mood that was established, whereas the Orville is moving into that space. So I, the question I pose on the way over here is, do, do they risk undercutting these copyright arguments by by altering the way that the property uh, feels? You've got to wonder. I mean, it's the I think the thing you really look into is, does it like undercut it because it basically makes it too broad so it's not specific, it's not Trek, or does it actually make it stronger because now Trek could be more things? Yeah, and do you just carve out more intellectual space that people can't get into yeah. by just constantly changing your, your, what your property is? But then, again, we get back to, well, how long does that copyright last? Yeah. And particularly, I think, when you talk about the Orville versus Discovery and the idea of sort of, you know, grimdark on one side and sort of the, the this, what I always try to refer to as the aluminum foil sort of look <laughs> on the other side, which, you know, was interesting because that's also something when we talk about the idea of an, of an idea expression dichotomy, the idea of science fiction itself has changed 
changed that way. It really has. You go back to like the 1960s, 1970s, science fiction is very hopeful. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you know, and that's, you know, uh, the best example if you want to go see sort of the, what I call the aluminum foil and where it comes from, go watch Moonraker, the the James (laughs) Bond, because they all wear essentially aluminum foil outfits. But if you think about it, what we considered space to be at that point in time was heavily influenced by the space program. And so we had this very hopeful, very clean, very sanitized future, which was wonderful. I mean, it was almost, it was sort of utopian. Then you have Blade Runner. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I think most people give Ridley Scott the the sort of, you know, the the kudos for creating Grimdark. Yep. And the idea of an alien and it's, but I mean, really, Blade Runner was the first one of just the idea that the future is gross, it's dirty. I mean, you've got to have guys that do, you know, take out noodles, come to your window in Manhattan because you can't actually even get down to the street. You know, that type of idea as to what it is. We then saw science fiction go that way and sort of wholly embrace that. I mean, and, and that's vast majority of science fiction since there's and has been that. The lone exception being Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Star Trek has always been very pure, very clean. And again, even the lines of the starships are very lean. The lines of their uniforms, very clean, very militaristic, very space program-esque. And, and, and very much contrasting with the other species in the show, which yeah. are, 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 are different culturally and, and their technology reflects it. The, the sort of uh, tribal crudity of the, the Klingons, everything's very angular and harsh and, yep. and that's sort of a primitive look to it. Uh, and then the Romulans is very, uh, I don't know. Spy. I think it's yeah. sort of spy. Like, the Roman. It's the Roman Empire, yeah, it's very basically. subterfuge, though, yeah. too. Um, but yeah, I think you get into, but that, that kind of thing. Sort of, and you look at it and you say, well, then what's Trek? Yeah, what is it now? <laughs> if, if Trek is not this idea of the the sort of, you know, you know, we are going out in space because we are the great leader, which is basically what Trek sort of implies originally as to what it is. Hey, everything's wonderful. We're great. We figured it out. And our goal is to go out and discover people who haven't yet and in the same time to explore these questions of, of sort of our utopia. Um, what is Trek now? If we start saying, well, but it's not that, you know, why is it still Star Trek? Well, to, to try and summarize, um, this is kind of like fair use. It's, it's very fact-specific, but the bottom line is that the, the more that you clearly use material that belongs to somebody else, the more likely you are to get the hammer, don't you think? Yeah, I think that there's a few things you get into. And again, what I kind of comment about is I think the biggest thing with character copyright is are you referring to that character? If the answer is you are using Superman, you know, capital S, Superman as a proper name, you probably are in trouble. Yeah. If you're referring to a generic person who happens to be sort of like Superman and really isn't Superman, but you could say is clearly the second, a, clearly a separately definable person, you tend to get further away. Now, where that line lies, who knows? And I think it's a very specific, very fact specific. The other thing that I think comes into it in question with it is, what are you doing with it? Yeah. Because if you start talking about, hey, I'm making a multi-million dollar movie, yeah. you might be more likely well, to get when in When Hanson was worth a million bucks, all of a sudden, everybody cared. Yeah. And I think I think that's maybe the takeaway is if, if you want to use these things, you've got to be a little more subtle about it. So, you know, the, the Orville is more Star Trek than Star Trek is now. I, I'm not aware of any lawsuits being filed. Uh, but but, the, but then Axanar got picked on because they made no bones about it. It's a Star Trek movie. And I think that's what it really boils down to is if you want to do that, they want their cut of it. Yeah. And I think it's just that simple. And I think that that's the end of thing. So, again, sort of turning by our original pilot thing is do you want to write the seventh book of The Song of Ice and Fire? The answer is you can't. 
yeah. because that's where you're going to get sued is because you're writing the seventh book of the science. Better not say the word Westeros anywhere in there. Yeah. You know, if, if you do and you make it clear that that's what you're connected to, then you're, you're asking for trouble. Yeah, whereas if you want to write that style of novel, and I mean, there's a, there's other ones out there, you know, which have written, I think, the style of George R. R. Martin, the, the, what's now I'm, I'm sort of referring to as the huge epic fantasy, mm-hmm. multi-generational in a lot of cases, definitely characters and characters which yep. are disposable, um, you know, as we've all seen. There are those kind of books out there, and quite frankly, some of them are extremely good. Um, I'd recommend the um, uh, the Dandelion. I think it's called Dandelion Wars um, to anybody, which has got a sort of similar feel, but it's actually set in a more like feudal Japan, feudal Korea type of feel um, thing. And very, very good book um, that I'd, I'd definitely highly recommend. But you have that. You have this idea that basically says that's it's the same style, but it's clearly a separate universe. Yep. It's an incredibly well laid out universe. It has nothing to do with Westeros. I think it's it's the I think the key point I would I would emphasize is originality, not just in story but in setting. Yeah, and and really what it is is you're not referring to the to the thing. Yep. You are writing something which is totally unique, totally to you. And I think at that point in time you're clearly away. Well, we've got mail. We have another well actually guy. This is from Connor, who says in your Star Wars Episode Eight reconciliation episode, Ben said that Kylo Ren kills Ben Kenobi. That never happened. Darth Vader killed Ben Kenobi. Check your facts. Darth Vader did not <laughs> kill Ben Kenobi. Nobody has ever killed Ben Kenobi. Yeah. He's still a force ghost. Uh, and then we also have one uh, from Ed from Iska points out that Lucasfilm is suing a card company that made a Sabacc game. Sabacc, Sabacc, S-A-B-A-C-C. Um, so Sabacc is allegedly in, in the Star Wars, uh, whether it's the background material, I don't know if it's canon or not, but it's yeah, the yeah. game that in Empire Strikes Back at some point, Lando Calrissian says, uh, you know. Uh, Han Solo says Han Solo, Han Solo says it, yeah. yeah. Han won the Millennium Falcon from Lando in some game of chance. And in the you know the secondary materials, they identify the game as being called Sabacc, S-A-B-A-C-C. Well, someone made that game. Uh, presumably didn't license it because they're getting sued over it now. And so Ed wants us to talk about that. This is actually similar. This this happens a lot where you yep. get fiction like Duff Beer from The Simpsons. I think somebody actually made that at some point. Yep. Um, we could probably do a whole episode on, on Yeah, that. and this is, it's sort of tying into these types of things where we're getting into, what we're getting into, this is again, these, these small elements and the idea that these small elements are becoming important. Um, you know, in conjunction with it, it's and universe building. It's universe building, and where does this where does this go? It's it's a character copyright question. I mean, you can argue Sonic's yeah. a character. Yeah, it's related for sure. Uh, the last one we got, someone asked about our our mailbag episode. We talked about uh, the rules that apply to standard setting organizations, and Kirk <laughs> Kirk talked about um, there's a requirement for fair, reasonable, and non discriminatory licensing terms for patents that are considered standard essential patents. So if you have a a technological standard and a patent. Is required to practice the standard, then the patent has to be licensed on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. Sometimes that acronym is known as FRAND. Kirk described it on the episode as fair and reasonable terms, which is a whole different acronym. <laughs> Someone just wanted to clarify that uh, what we meant was FRAND. Yes, yes clarify. Yes, we the same thing. However, meant. that is probably the best, like, oops acronym yeah. I think ever created. Uh, whoever that was, I forget who it was, but nice, nice catch. That's, uh, I see where your mind's at. Okay. There's the music. It's time to go again. If you have questions, comments, topic ideas, or just want to hear your name on the air, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can talk to us on our Facebook page. Search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. You will find us there. You can subscribe to this podcast. You'll find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please give us a review. We really appreciate those reviews. It helps other people uh, get our podcasts. And spread the word. Tell your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at KirkDMN. 
Next time, we are not 100% sure on topic at this point. We might dive more into the particulars of Disney. I think we're going to go into some, some more on this character copyright, into this fan fiction thing. I mean, this, people have demanded this for a while. You know, we're almost 20 episodes in. We probably should actually provide some <laughs> fan service in the course of doing this. Yeah, I, we, I prepared like a three-page outline for this. We maybe talked about 10% of it. Yeah, uh, and, and I think that's the thing is it's, we're probably going to keep going on the same episode just because there is so much interest on it. So Yeah, this is, a, this is a big one everybody likes. So that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 